Hi, I'm Maria Kadabai, Head of Programs at BAFTA, and I'm joined by Jahan Najem and Pedro Koz, the filmmakers behind the BAFTA-nominated The Great Hack. Um, Jahan, director of this phenomenal documentary. Um, I know you probably spent a lot of time over the last year talking about it, so we might cover some of the same ground again, but I know that our listeners would really like to know about kind of the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, and your relationship with it in the sense of, did you know about Cambridge Analytica before you wanted to make a documentary or did you want to make a documentary about the idea of data being kind of harvested and mined for profit and political gain? Um, this film actually started as a completely different story. So we had come into it thinking that we were going to make a film about the Sony hack um, and then as we started working on that, I'd say it was about a year that we'd been working on the Sony hack film. Um, and then we were watching as um, we had Pedro and I and um, Kareem had, had made a film called The Square. Um, and at that time, when we were making The Square, social media was really a tool for positive change. Um, people were using Twitter, the revolutionaries were using Twitter and Facebook to figure out how to gather, to hold leaders accountable. And when we finished The Square, um, pretty soon after that, we saw the pendulum swing in the other direction, where those very same tools were being used to spread fear and disinformation and to control people. Um, and then we saw that happening in the 2016 Brexit and then the 2016 election in the US. And we were reading about Cambridge Analytica through Carol Codwallader or hearing about it through, through her actually at the time. It was actually before she had come out with this really um, big article and about a year before she had come out with this uh, uh, news with Chris Wiley. So Carol was a guardian journalist. Yes. Carol's a Guardian yeah. journalist. And this is a very British story, yeah. actually. <laughs> so um, Kareem, um, our, uh, who is a, one of our collaborators, um, was obsessed with the use of data and was w reading her, uh, Carol, and talking with Carol, um, but sending us articles, Pedro and I. And Pedro and I were kind of like, listen, we, we can't make a film out of articles. We've got to find a character that will really be able to take us through this. Um, but we were becoming more and more fascinated with um, how data was being used to control and manipulate and target. And specifically, we were watching what was happening in the elections, and we were looking for these, um, what we were calling wreckage sites. Like, mm -hmm. what is visible in this story, because it really felt like this invisible story that was happening. This this hack was not a, a physical hack. It was sort of a hack of our minds, and and the story was existing in our minds and in our computer screens. And so we were trying to figure out how is how do you make this invisible story visible? And so that's when we began looking for characters. And Carol was a great place to start because she had been researching this topic and researching Cambridge Analytica. And we were starting to understand the connections that this one company, Cambridge Analytica, had worked in Brexit, the 2016 campaign, and in election, election manipulations in something like 70 countries around the world. I just I like the idea of kind of, you've said it's like a hack of your kind of own mind, and you do really feel like it's a hack of consciousness. You, I think one of your principal characters, David, says it quite at the beginning when he's with students in the rooms and how many people think, you know, 
you're being listened to by your phone. I know that I definitely had that go, you know, you're thinking about something or you're having a conversation with a friend and suddenly on your Facebook feed or on your Google search as an advert for something that you think, I spoke about that yesterday and now they're sending me holiday ads for wherever. Um, it's, it's fascinating in that sense, but obviously he explains very eloquently what they're doing and how your data is mined. So I just want to talk about, again, the characters and we've mentioned Carol, but David and how he came into the story and the path of the film. Well, I think um, David came to, we met David actually about not sh too long after we met with Carol. Um, she with introduced us. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Carol opened up a lot of, um, and a lot of worlds for us and characters and, and David was one of them. And, I, and you, Johan, you went to meet David, I think in, um, in the East Coast, Martha's Vineyard, Martha's right? Martha's Vineyard. At the time, yeah. he was raising money because in the UK, right, you have the, the he was using UK law mm -hmm. um, in order to, he, he was basically on, the, David was on this quest. He was like the everyman, like saying, okay, my data was taken, used in the 2016 election. Do I have a right to know where my data has gone and what they have on me and how it's being used. And so I'm going to make this request to get my data back. Um, and you couldn't do that in the U.S. If a company takes your data in the U.S., there's no laws to protect you. You can't ask for it back. But in the U.K., you can. And so he was using U.K. law in order to basically ask Cambridge Analytica for his data back. So, But if he was to lose the lawsuit in the UK, he has to pay for it. So he was raising money basically to for, for this lawsuit. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. So we met him in Martha's Vineyard when he was meeting some people to see whether they would support this lawsuit. And at that time, he was really only one of the very few people that um, was really pursuing and trying to do anything because in the US we have very little, almost no protections and still don't um, in terms of data privacy and um, protections and pr uh, privacy protections. Um, and so he was um, very alarmed and he's been looking today. He's a professor at uh, the new school um, and had been very alarmed. And f so for him, th this idea, uh, he, he was so incredible for us because it's the stakes a very personal these stakes that are huge for all of us as a society i think are very personalized in in david um and his quest at that time you know almost uh you know john the baptist ask you know a voice crying out in the desert saying something is wrong here we all need to pay attention to this and you know we began to like Jahan and kareem really began to follow and film with him right from the very beginning on this um, day, you know, very uh, David versus Goliath uh, kind of quest. And it's really extraordinary how, how far he came um, to, you know, to accomplish what he has. And I think has his case here in the UK has set a lot of precedents. Um, him working with Ravi Naik, um, his um, uh, lawyer here has um, really changed a lot. And, he is helping also move things forward in the United States and, and helping trying to get some legislation passed um, for some protection, any protections that we desperately need to have there. Um, but that's how we came to, to David was via Carol. So you have your heroes in a way, Carol and David, and then your anti-hero, 
um, Brittany Kaiser, um, who, you know, some could say becomes heroic through the process of the film, most certainly. Um, a lot of the film hangs, I imagine, on her involvement, her being so open to kind of telling the truth with you and trusting you to do that. Um, as filmmakers, I suppose that's the main the main objective is to gain trust in your participants and probably the hardest thing to do. And especially when a film like this is so challenging for those involved and probably has repercussions, you know, it will go on for many years. What were those? And A, how did you find her and come across her? And then how did you talk her into being such a central part of the film? Well, originally we met Brittany um, actually through... um, another incredible friend of ours um, and who's very involved in the documentary community um, around the world, but she's from the UK, Jess Search, had suggested that we meet with Paul Hilder, um, who at the time had been working with Brittany and looking at um, what she had because he basically said she he was encouraging her to come forward um, with the information she had. And um, you mentioned... Um, that she becomes a hero during the course of the film. Um, when you actually look back at the whole Cambridge Analytica situation, there were only two people that ac- ended up coming forward with information, and that was Chris Wiley and Brittany Kaiser. Um, and so when, uh, you know, we were really excited to meet her, although we um, she was flying to Thailand at the time, um, and she talked to us on Signal, I think it was, and basically said, I have a couple of days in Thailand if you want to sit with me before I really become very public about everything that's happening. And there's a number of New York Times journalists that want to meet me and all of this. And we were excited to meet her, but we had no idea what to expect. Um, and Kareem uh, basically got on a pli- on a plane. She said, I'm, you know, land at this airport in Thailand. I can't tell you exactly where I'm going to be, but land at this airport and we'll, I'll tell you where to go from there. It's all very so Bond-esque. It was, <laughs> it was very much so, which, you know, as you comes out in the film when, you know, we really wanted to to give you that feeling yeah. of... Especially when me- she's in like an infinity pool when you exactly. first see her. <laughs> And that's very much in the way embodies sort of the, the, the journey that we were going on as well. We had met Carol and David and were trying to sort of unravel this mystery in a certain way. And the way we've met Brittany is very much the way you kind of meet Brittany in the film. It, it's very much out of left field and unexpected. Um, and it's, it's the, the beginning of the peeling of the onion only begins there in a certain way, very much um, sort of to, to really dig, to see from the inside. And I think that's one of the, um, incredible things about um, making films with Jahan and Kareem is, you know, they want to look at all sides. And I think this was an important, very important um, perspective that um, we really felt was crucial to to this film and to the story was also hearing what's going on in the inside. Absolutely. And I think Brittany gets a lot of flack for her personality and whether she, you know, was she, what were her intentions and all this, but, and 
It's interesting because when you look at whistleblowers, somehow people expect them to be Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. Well, they wouldn't be whistleblowers if they weren't in complicated situations, right? So Edward Snowden was in a very complicated situation when he came out. Um, and I think that, you know, we as a society need to really figure out how to welcome people who do come forward with information that they have so that they feel safe. And they're and often complicated people as well. Kind That's of their right. very nature of doing yes. whistleblowing or kind of, you know, being in that situation that you're kind of complicit in and then you realize you don't want to be complicit in it anymore it means you're a certain kind of person. Yeah. Also, they need a little bit of yeah. protection in a yeah. way. Absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a lot at, Brittany has a lot at stake and a, she really put a lot on the line for this. And I mean, you can, you know, people can question our motivations, but at the end of the day, she, she's, as Jahan said, one of two people that has come forward and has been very, um, collaborating with investigations on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and you know, her information has helped on, you know, pushed the investi investigation forward and has helped so much in, in this in this very nebulous world of um, of the, the whole Cambridge Analytica story, but also the whole, the larger data story as well, um, and really has helped us make this invisible, something that was invisible, visible for us all. And people, you can look at Brittany and look and say, oh, well, she maybe she, you know, shouldn't have worked for that campaign or this campaign, but you know, you've, you've got to put one yourself in her shoes where she was just 30, I think, mm -hmm. and basically not even. not even 30, working for this large company where basically she was being told, well, this is like a lawyer's job, you know? I mean, you have this 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 job and it doesn't matter whether it's this is a nonpartisan job, whether you're taking this campaign or that campaign, you're like a lawyer. You are dedicated to this company. And at the time, there was nothing illegal about what she was doing. I mean, they, Cambridge Analytica, I think, won an Ogilvy Award for their Crooked Hillary campaign, right? Where you, which you look at now, and that campaign, that Crooked Hillary campaign is filled with lies. But it won a huge advertising award. So at that time, you know, they were being lauded for some of their efforts. So it's interesting. It's every, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Which which is interesting. Yes. She just released, Brittany released a number of files in our film and showed, you know, some of the inner workings of Cambridge Analytica. And she goes through her computer in this amazing scene where she finds, uh, you know, information about Facebook. And it's this revelatory moment. Um, but she hadn't found everything in her computer, actually. Um, when, you know, it was given over to the Mueller investigation, and she wasn't allowed at that time to release some of the things as our film was coming out. So since our film's coming out, she's actually started a hashtag hindsight is 2020 and Brilliant. has been releasing documents on Twitter, basically going country by country. So this is how Cambridge Analytica was involved in Kenya and this is how it was involved in Brazil. And so it's been fascinating since the film's come out, you know, in the last... She's been releasing these documents over the last two months, basically. Yeah, exactly. And um, we've been getting some very interesting feedback from all around the world as people are opening these documents and understanding how the, the elections in their country um, was manipulated. Do you think that it's um, only a certain kind of person that will pay attention to anything that's leaked now? 
and even a certain kind of person that will watch the film that already has an understanding in a way that, or no, has a suspicion that they're being manipulated in some way. Do you think it's reached audiences that have no idea and perhaps have been succumbed to kind of, you know, manipulation without knowing so? I mean, it's a good question. I We always hope that our films get sort of out there beyond the, you know... The core documentary audience. <laughs> the core documentary <laughs> audience. And we feel very, very excited about this one, actually. I mean, when we... We, we we just arrived in London yesterday and the person that welcomed us into the country had seen the film. We have, um, I, the film has appealed to a younger generation, yeah. actually. We, we keep getting messages from friends who are parents who have said, you know, that their 17, 18-year-old or whatever has called and said, Mom, you have to see this film. So that's exciting, you know, when you feel like it's broken through. Um, and I think that there's an interest in it because people know that there is, you know, as my phone listening to me, why am I getting these sponsored ads? Why are you, why am I living in a household where I can no longer talk to my grandmother or grandfather because they have a completely different news feeder and are living in their own little information bubble? Mm. So there's a, I think there's an understanding that something's going on, but it's just difficult to connect the dots. Mm. And what we were hoping with this film was that there would be some connection. Kind of connection. Mm. And and also sp really speaks to I think um, I mean I'm from Bra I'm from Brazil um, and the my it's extraordinary seeing the reach of this film all over the world and I can see that very tangibly with my friends and family um, people who watch documentaries maybe once in every five years and this film has done that I mean I'm getting messages from friends of friends from cousins of cousins and like oh my god i saw your name on this i you know i've never watched a doc before but this was extraordinary and and it's really because it's it's tapping into something that i think is so universal to our lives nowadays which um as jahan said it we feel like there's something we we're all noticing um that there is this invisible hand um, underneath all these devices um, and you know it's, it was hard to put a finger on it and it's it's really trying to make that into um, a visible reality and you know from the uber driver and the mormon uber driver in utah um, who works for a biomedical firm who could not stop talking about the film and how um, to the real estate agent who was selling the apartment next to mine, who I, I never met before and was talking about the film. So I think um, I think it's done this, this well because it has really tapped into something that's very universal and so intimate to us all. And we do, we do feel this, um, that we are feeling in a very fragmented re reality and it it's really taps into... Has it made you want to disconnect in a way and I don't know if you saw Sasha Baron Cohen who did his talk at the Anti-Defamation League kind of questioning the Silicon Six and at that point I'm like that's it there's no Facebook no Instagram no Twitter and lasted maybe a day and then I'm like back there and back on it and I've tried to kind of weigh up the pros and cons and the benefits to my life of being connected or being disconnected and what that does and I, at the moment 
I'm still connected. Who knows? Um, and how has that impacted? Obviously, you must have so much more awareness and data, and you now know. And you're, what do you, are you still out there, so to speak? Yeah, but but it's it's interesting that you say it, it's almost you put it as this this forced binary whether to be connected. <laughs> Um, and compromised or not, or or, comp- or having to go completely offline, I think we are being forced into this, f- you know, fake binary. We shouldn't have to be forced in this way to give. Um, we should be connected. I think there are advantages of being connected. Um, th- this technology is not all bad, but the way it's being used and being weaponized—that's something that we need to begin questioning. Because is this? how we want is this the price of innovation it shouldn't be um and i think that's one of the um things that we want to begin questioning we do we want to have greater control and greater say um and greater protections and we don't feel like um the price for it should be our democracies our the most treasured institutions our privacy um so i think for us it's it we we are still connected. I want to be connected. I want to be able to connect with friends all over the world. I want to um, have this, be able to to take advantage of the, what this technology brings, which does. I'm still on Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you know it still is the primary way to connect to Facebook and Twitter mm. and uh, and Instagram. You know just in even in releasing this film, it was, you know, the, the best kind of way to connect all of your contacts and let, let people know um, that it's out there. Uh, so, again, as, as, as Pedro was saying, it's a false choice, right? Like, we shouldn't have to feel like in order to be connected, we're giving away all of our pri- privacy. Um, and unfortunately, we're in the United States heading towards the next election, and none of the election laws have changed. Brace yourself. <laughs> Facebook has fought, been fined $5 billion, but then their stock price went up. So we haven't taken the necessary steps um, yet in the United States, for sure, um, to address some of these huge issues. Um, I, I know you in the UK, you're dealing with Brexit, which has we just have. happened. Happened last night, in fact. Yeah. Oh. The first day today out of the European Union. <laughs> today is the first okay. day, yeah, out of the European Union. But but and, and the UK and, and Europe has has taken this issue a lot more seriously than we have in the US. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in two days, we're the first votes are going to be cast in the in these years um, presidential primaries mm-hmm. leading up to the twenty twenty presidential elections. And the fact that nothing has changed in terms of protections in the United States is quite uh, sobering. So we still have a think a long road ahead it's kind of like the greatest invention right has happened with the internet that has been you know has changed our world dramatically Mm -hmm. right and you think about an invention like the invention of the car right we didn't when there were accidents you didn't ban cars right you you created seat belts and so we just haven't figured out what the seat belts are exactly the internet do you think that there is a parallel universe world out there where have all the information that Cambridge Analytica used to kind of, you know, control the Brexit campaign or the US elections or various other elections around the world where if they had kind of harvested that information out to a left in a way that we'd be living in a, you know, in a parallel place where 
you know, this, do you think that kind of the mining and harvesting of information as a commodity can be and should be used and what is good, I suppose, you know, would that be good if we kind of, you know, if Trump had lost the election and Clinton got in and if Brexit had not happened and the various other elections around the world because of the same use and tool of information, would that still, would we still be so appalled? I mean, I, I don't think that, that the, it's, it's, the, it's, it's as, it's as Pedro said, it's, it's the weaponizing, right? It's the, it's the fact that, you know, you can, you can keep people on Facebook longer with messages of fear and messages of division. And, you know, rather than if you, if you listen to some of the internal, um, audio tapes of, of Cambridge Analytica trying to figure out how to target voters. And they basically figured out that by targeting people that were highly neurotic and making them very fearful, for example, in the U.S. of immigrants coming in and crossing the borders, right? This was very useful to be able to create fear and then have Trump be represented as the person that was going to solve that fear. Um, and that's, uh, and that's yeah. exactly what happened also here in the U.K. with Brexit, you know, seeing what what voters are susceptible to, you know, that that's the thing with these platforms. You're able to analyze from um, Facebook likes and Google searches, all these things that we are leaking, this data that we're leaking doesn't just evaporate. Um, it can be, it's one of the most incredible tools to categorize people and to be able to prey on people's fears mm -hmm. and prejudices um, because fear and anger are the things that um, keep our attention, one of the things that keep our attention the most on these platforms. And these platforms, their commodities are our attention. Um, so um, you, you're seeing the people that are most susceptible to um, fears about, you know, job security or are being uh, sold a certain narrative about immigration, immigrants taking people's jobs and rights and all that. And that is... The, that's what we are calling the weaponization. It's this, we don't know that we're leaking this data and we don't know that it's being used to categorize us and to target in a very micro individual level based on our own fears and prejudices. Um, and I think regardless of party, going back to your question, regardless of where you stand politically, I think we need to take a step back and see the morals and the ethics of it. You know, is this who we is this how we want to use our most incredible innovations? Is this how we want to move forward as a society? Because it is having a very deep and corrosive effects at our most basic and important institutions. So am I gonna like take a little step back in terms of kind of playing on your fear and anger words ago, last documentary that you both collaborated on, Jahan, your film The Square. Um, six years ago now, is it? I don't know. 20, is it? Oh, yeah, we released it in 2013. So that was centered around um, what has been known as the Arab Spring or Arab uprisings, and specifically in Egypt in 2011 um, and in Tahrir Square. I wanted to talk a little bit about filmmaking in the sense did you, Jahan, go in? 
to that situation, first of all, as a protester or a filmmaker, which came first? I was living in Egypt at the time, and I had made a film called Egypt, We're Watching You, Sheifinkum, which basically translates into We're Watching You. It's a bit of a play on words in, in Arabic. But um, it was about a group of women that were starting to film everything that was happening around the elections, like basically, you know, some of the blocking of people to get to voting. And these were these have been activists for a long time. And I had been in communication with them. That film had come out in 2007. And then I had been in communication with them and they said there's a big, there are some big protests that are about to happen. And um, I actually flew out of the country. I had to be at a conference and then um, Egypt exploded. And I just said, I, you know, I live 10 minutes away. I was fascinated both as an, an Egyptian and as a filmmaker. I wanted to be in the center of it all. Um, so I flew back as quickly as I could. Um, I flew back the day, actually, that they had been arresting many journalists. Mm -hmm. It was like the fourth, fifth day in, something like that. Um, and I was, I had copies of the film from that I had made earlier, th a few years earlier, to give to some people there that wanted copies. So when I came in from the airport, I was immediately stopped. My car was searched. That film was found. And basically, I was held for many, many hours because they, you know, they, they saw that I had been somebody who had been interested in this kind of activism before. Um, and at the time, I think the government had no idea you know, what was happening and who was a spy and who was, you know. So um, then they let me go uh, about six hours later. And... I dropped my stuff at home and I, 10 minutes away, which is 10 minutes away from the square and went directly into the square. And having made these kind of character driven films before, I knew that I knew I wanted to make a film about what was happening because I had never in before in Egypt see men, women, old, young, different religions, rich, poor, you know, all basically in this beautiful um, environment of speaking with each other and trying to figure out how they wanted to change the country and feeling an ownership over that for the first time. And, um, you know, you see this spectacular event and you immediately want to sort of get your camera in there and be able to share it with the world. Um, but the way to do it in a very personal way is to look for characters. And so we very quickly met, I met Ahmed in the square. Um, and a number, and Magdi and Khalid, and really asked them if I could start following them. And I met Kareem in the square as well, as, and I thought he would be a great character because he was setting up a big stage in the square. And I actually filmed him for a couple of weeks, and then he said, You know, it, I don't know if I want to be a character in the film, but you really need a producer. Do you think that I might be a producer of this film? And so then he came on as a producer and then flash forward two years later, we got married and had three kids. So he produced a lot more than the movie. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. And then we basically stalked Pedro for a year because we were, you know, huge fans of his work. He's a brilliant filmmaker um, and director. And he, uh, and then we convinced him to come on and, and help us. Uh, make the film assemble kind of what was Pull that like but how much and how many hours oh, <laughs> uh, about 1600 hours of material 
Um, yeah, but little does Jahan knows that I was also a sec secret huge fan of hers wow. and her incredible work. And so it was, uh, I was also secretly stalking them and hoping <laughs> we would <laughs> connect. Um, but it was, I think that's the, the brilliant thing is um, with Jahan and Kareem's work and very much going back to Jahan's uh, earlier films from startup.com to Control Room to Rafia is tackling huge societal themes and topics and issues that we're dealing with as a huge society on a very personal level. Um, and the the story of the Arab Spring in Egypt seen through the eyes of those living it, I think that's one of the most powerful things. That, and because if we connect with each other on a human, basic human emotional level, that transcends um, any sort of, because sometimes going into these films with just things and larger topics, it can feel very removed and unreachable. But if we connect on a human level, that has such a much stronger resonance. And and the people who have been inspired by the square um, to who have used that film to help in their own struggles in other countries um, has been extraordinary hearing about that. And so um, I I think I am so lucky to have been able to 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 collaborate with Jahan. I, I have never <laughs> seen anyone um, find humanity in and open up people in certain in any way like you have so um john so it's been oh, an incredible journey thank you it's a it's it's these films are the the best thing about making these films is collaborating with people you love so it's uh it's been a, a great honor to collaborate with pedro mm -hmm. on these Pe past mm -hmm. few few films pedro is right your films have been kind of shape-shifting and societal shifting in grown our awareness on a global level of things that, you know, people don't automatically have access to. Obviously, The Great Hack has opened up the world's eyes completely to kind of an information scandal. The Square, I know that obviously a lot of people were aware, but that lens into the lives of people actually taking part is something that, you know, even from a journalistic point of view, people just didn't get to see. And with control room kind of being in the Al Jazeera newsroom, kind of, you know, to be having that kind of viewpoint, um, it's very rare. Do you still have, I'm sure the answer is yes, but I'm not preempting it, this appetite to kind of carry on and what has changed in kind of the last 20 years since you've been making films in terms of in your own life, in your own world, you know, do you have a fear or is there still a sheer excitement of kind of, you know, unveiling truth? Ah, oh, it's interesting. I mean, what's changed? I mean, before we made this film, Obama was president and I didn't have kids. And now, you know, that's, that's just in the last like four years. And now we have three kids and Trump's president and, you know, it's a whole different world. But in terms of filmmaking, I think that what has remained the same is just because, you know, I, I love the fact that so many people have these great iPhones and a lot of people, you know, people have access a lot more to equipment that there's small equipment that can make these, these films. But 
at the same time, just because, you know, you have a pencil doesn't make you a writer, right? Like you still have to figure a story remains the same where, um, you know, it's really important to find the kinds of films that we make, people that you really connect to that are, you know, telling this personal story, which reveals this larger um, sort of societal or world story. That's kind of what we like to do. Um, and that hasn't changed over the last 20 years. Um, distribution models have changed. Um, and I think um, there's a lot more support out there now for documentaries yeah. um, in, you know, in a very different way. Um, although the last two films, The Square and and uh, and the great hack have both been on netflix um and what's been amazing about that is the absolute global reach that netflix yeah. netflix has and so you get to sort of real time read comments and all of this um i i do miss the theatrical screenings and really being able to sort of person to person and q and a's and really see how people feel yeah. um I think that the release of Control Room was amazing in terms of it just really spread. It was a bit like a protest film, you know. I think people basically needed wanted to understand what's happening in Iraq. Is there really mm -hmm. weapons of mass destruction? What's going on with Bush? And uh, people gathered in that film to really, you know, we had post-screening discussions that were amazing. I think it's the first time also then kind of now we are more aware. We didn't know about kind of news manipulation and it was so territory driven and so what you're fed and the internet was still in kind of its fetal stages. So you just consumed what was shown to you. Exactly. And it was the first time you're like, Ooh, there's different perspectives and am I getting the truth? Am I seeing the truth? What What is the, the truth? truth? Exactly. <laughs> but I, I do feel like, um, I mean, The Great Hack was, uh, was a difficult film to make because it wasn't your... Uh, you know, this, this whole part of making something um, that's really invisible, visible, was something that we worked very hard on. And we worked with Judy Corin, who is our producer, and she is, uh, I mean, she's a, she's a genius when it comes to um, animation and graphics. And so she really took it upon herself to figure out how are we going to visualize this story. And, um, and we all talked about it and wanted it to be not this kind of like green surveillance kind of thing that you see, but much more like Fantasia and emojis and, you know, this sort of happy sharing baby pictures with friends. Exactly. And that's, you know, and underneath that is this insidious. And we, it, we worked with these, these guys. Um, yeah. The, they were amazing. the Ash Thorpe uh, for the 3d animations and the shy kids from Canada for the, the 2d. And it was really, I, you know, Judy was so instrumental in bringing the, in, in, in trying to break this, um, cinematic language for this film um because we're we were very used to the sort of the matrix language right the ones and zeros and seeing that but that's actually not the reality that we experience we experience the fun heart-shaped likes and as kareem says the 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 disneyland this cornucopia mm. of fun a glossy exterior but if you pull back the veneer of that that's when you know um that's where the, the manipulation is happening. And so how is that almost tied to our physical personalities? That's why you're seeing these pixels coming 
out of us in the beginning of the film because we are, it's an extension of our physical selves now. And that's what we, that's when we started looking for these Call, what we called wreckage sites. It's where the physical and the digital meet, right? Mm-hmm. It's where the the online digital th- stakes become real in real life. Um, and But there's a whole world universe living underneath that. And so how to bring that to life was a, one of our biggest challenges um, because so much of this the story and film actually happened online. Yeah. I also feel like it's taken you asking about the last 20 years in a way. I feel like this, I never would have been able to make this film without these, this amazing collaboration. But also um, the films that I've made in the past felt like um, everything was kind of leading to this, right? Because we had startup.com, which was sort of the, we made I made that with D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. We released that into the world in 2001, and that was, you know, really about the burst of the internet bubble when everybody wanted to be God online, right? And some people became God online, as you can see with the guy, <laughs> with the Google and Facebook. But when we made Startup.com, Google had not even become public yet. You know, I mean, that's the time period we were in, and everybody. Taxi drivers were asking about how do you get your first IPO and all of this, right? Um, to making Control Room, which felt where where this was really the, the about spin, right? And whether you were watching Al Jazeera or whether you're watching CNN or Fox or you know you or BBC, you had a completely different understanding of, of what was happening in the world. And as somebody who's grown up between the Middle East and the U.S. and watching different parts of my family unable to communicate with each other because what they were watching was completely different, right? That sort of was planting the seeds to this, what we would make, you know, the great hack many years later, because now we're sort of at this time, which is like control room on steroids, right? Because instead of just watching different television stations we've each got our own individual personalized news feeds which are pulling us deeper and deeper into our rabbit hole and our sort of information bubbles right and then so then fast forward to the square where we were like oh social media is going to be the tool for change and hold every corrupt leader accountable and you know this is really an incredible facebook's Twitter, all of these, you know, platforms, incredible tool for change. And so I think we saw the, you know, in, in this, in this swing, we saw as Pedro has, has put it with both of these films we've worked on together, you know, the, the, um, from the square, (laughs) from the square to the death of the public square, from the square to the death of the public square. Right. Is is exactly how he puts it. So it's you asked about these last years of filmmaking. I feel like everything that we've worked on has really led us to this point of bringing yeah. together information and control, and you know, and 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 ultimately the biggest question, which is when we become the commodity, where is our free will, and do we have free will? Yeah, it's amazing that the pendulums, like how mm. you've really captured the from startup.com to the great hack the pendulum swings, you know, the back and forth that have, you've really captured that. And, but I think one thing that's universal are the, the stories and the, the characters who have led us 
tell these stories um i think at the 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 tools keep getting sharper and better and all that but the the storytelling you know is the same and it's been around you know mm-hmm. something thousands of years um and i think that's the most important thing is actually despite all the no- tools and innovations with the the humanity and the storytelling is um what where we find our humanity in each other yeah that's right and what hasn't changed is this is the fact that these characters are really the people that give us this great gift yeah. right by letting us into their lives by trusting us to tell their story um you know they they really have opened up worlds to us and to publics that we would never ordinarily get to see and you know so without these people we would be nowhere i think you're completely right it is all about storytelling and you're both two of the most incredible storytellers that i have met and seen the work of so congratulations on the great hack and i'm really excited to see what comes next thank you both thank you so, thank much. You so much for having us Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.